Today, we are going to start the conversation with Kevin Groom, founder of Speaker 9. Kevin, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So Kevin and I spoke recently for the Entrepreneur Journey series, and I found him to be a great interviewee, and his story was also very interesting and very much in line with the philosophy with which we operate here, which is capital-efficient entrepreneurship. So Kevin, tell us about your business. What do you do? Let's get you introduced to our audience. Sure, sure. So Pike and Nine is a software as a service company, much like BlackBob. Uh, we're in the MarTech space. Uh, and in that space, we help major multi-location brands uh, to empower their local selling outlets to produce marketing materials, polished professional marketing materials of all kinds. As an example, Marriott International is one of our longest standing customers. And uh, in that organization, there are more than 7,000 hotels around the world who use Pike and Nine software known as Campaign Drive to produce everything from small space banner ads all the way up to huge billboards, outdoor billboards, and, and pretty much everything in between. So that's what we do for a living. And how did you get this business off the ground? So uh, like many entrepreneurs, uh, I was in, uh, I was a partner uh, in another firm, uh, also something that I had founded in the advertising services space. And, and in that context, as a creative director and, a, and really a marketing advisor, I ran into a problem uh, and built a system to address that problem. Um, the story goes, uh, starts way back in about 1998 when we were working for uh, Ernst & Young uh, and at the technology consulting firm of Ernst & Young. And as I was sitting there working on a creative brief with a client, a CMO, a uh, very talented um, uh, professional, uh, her CEO walked in the door with something rather embarrassing in, in his hands. He was a Frenchman. Um, and he had two copies of a magazine called Computer World. And he had flipped to the back of the book. And in the classified space, uh, there were two uh, ads uh, for Capgemini Ernst & Young, his company. And one of them was brown, and one of them was blue, and one of them said they had 35,000 employees, and one of them said they had 54,000 employees, and the list of inconsistencies and embarrassing inconsistencies just went on and on. Um, and the reason that had happened is because those ads were produced by people out in the field, out for their offices, their recruiting offices. They hadn't been produced at headquarters. And the, the CEO and the a really unimitatable accent said, you know, you fix this or I fix you. Uh, and then he left. And so we were left with a problem. And, uh, and the CMO turned to me and said, you know, is it possible that we could do something about this? And I said, I think I have an idea. Uh, I think we can use the web to solve this problem. And about two weeks later, we came back with a very raw prototype of Pike and I, but it filled the need. And then we engaged that client and ended up on a journey that lasted about a year and resulted not just in a product, but in a business. And that's how we got started. So talk to me a bit about the key strategies in um, how you went to market and found your product market fit. And in particular, I recall that you found a segment that was particularly good for your um, company. Talk about... Yeah. That because in, you know in the way we operate in one million by one million, we focus heavily on segmentation and we always, you know, emphasize key, you know, core positioning, finding a really good pain point and a problem statement around which a particular you know set of customers, a particular type of customers, 
really align. So I, I know you're a textbook case study of that strategy, so do talk about that. Sure, sure. So marketing and advertising is an enormous ocean of opportunity, right? So um, I, I don't know how many trillions of dollars worldwide, but it's just enormous. And we focused very, very specifically on a problem that brands with multiple selling outlets have. So we shrunk our focus very narrowly to brands like Marriott International who have local selling outlets. And we found ourselves working with franchise networks. Right? So not the whole pie, just that segment of the pie. And, and within that segment of the pie, even smaller, uh, franchises that had more than 100 locations. You could have a 500, you could have 1,000, or you could have 10,000 locations. But unless you have a certain number of locations, you don't have this particular pain that we address. Yeah. Um, so that was the first thing. We really focused in on franchise, dealer, and reseller networks, often agents as well. And so we found ourselves selling to large companies, but a relatively small number of them. Um, and this, was, uh, this led us to the first realization, we weren't selling just software. We were creating uh, an expertise, and it was an expertise around what I um, called at the time the logistics branding. If you think of a brand as something that starts between the ears of a brilliant person, you know, in their mind, that brand needs to be carried out to those thousands of resellers uh, all the way to the, to the point where the brand will touch a customer, and it needs to reach that point undamaged. So we became experts in getting the brand from the, from the headquarters out to the local seller undamaged, and we called that the logistics of branding. And our strategy was not just to sell a software platform but to bring along um, expertise in the logistics of branding. So we became a, a guide, a Sherpa, if you will, uh, for brands that were trying to make a transition from a very command and control economy in the 1980s and 90s, that's really where brands were, to this much more democratized environment that we're in today. So we focused in very, very narrowly. We focused on one specific problem. We built software to solve that problem, and then we became experts, not just in our software, but in the, all the issues that are related to that problem, a problem we called the logistics of branding and that today is often called uh, distributed marketing. Mm -hmm. That was our strategy. So you raised a very small amount of friends and family money. Mm. Tell us how and how did you value the company in that process? Friends and family rounds are notoriously difficult to value. Yes. Um, so, so first I would say about that one, uh, there is nothing I think more valuable or there has been nothing more valuable to me as an entrepreneur than really close friends who really believed in me uh, and, and in the idea. So my first investor was really not intended to be an investor at all. He was my roommate from college, and it has been a long time since I went to college. So this is an old and, and dear friend. Um, but he took a look at the business when we were in our early days, um, really to advise me on strategy. The strategy we just talked about uh, is in no small part due to his advice. But he became interested uh, in the business much more deeply than he had at first thought he would uh, be. Uh, and around him formed a group of family and friends, uh, including his father, who was a, uh, a, uh, an executive of long standing and, and, and great uh, pedigree. 
And, and as we were thinking about this investment, uh, John Sr. Uh, said to me, the, the dad, he said, Kevin, John invested because of you, and I invested because of John, and all the other investors invested because of me. And I laughed, and I said, well, John, I invested myself and my heart and soul in this thing because I believe in the idea, I believe in the team, and I believe in our customers. And he said, perfect. That's perfect. And then off we went. Now, how did we value the company? You're absolutely right for a moment. Um, you know, a small company is worth what somebody's willing to pay for it sometimes. But okay. we had the benefit of being able to say we have some comparables. Remember that we started in the marketing and advertising services category. In that world, for decades, um, folks valued companies about one to one and a half times their revenues. So if you made you know, $5 million in revenues, you were worth about $5 million or maybe $7.5 million. And that was how yeah. advertising agencies always got bought by larger advertising you know, agencies. But we knew something, and this was a problem that I was trying to solve at that point in my career. I wanted to build a company where the assets didn't walk out the door every night. I wanted a company that had at its core software and around which there was a halo, if you will, of services and expertise. Um, and we knew that we could value that company higher than one and a half times revenues to the extent that software was really driving things. At that point, when the investors came in, I was about four long years into this uh, journey, um, and we uh, together agreed that we were worth about three and a half times our revenues at the time. And, and mm -hmm. for our investors, that was a big jump because they were still looking at us as producing marketing materials, so they would think of it as services. We had to prove to them that the software was really doing the job. It wasn't just people, it was software. Uh, and that that software was repeatable and durable and owned by us, you know, properly protected. All those things we had to prove. And, and when we got to the end of that process, um, we had a valuation somewhere between three and three and a half times revenues at the time. Very good, very good process. And, and I think what, what I find interesting is that um, your investors had enough um, grasp on conceptual thinking to be able to make that leap from a marketing services company to a software company. And they had enough faith in you that they were willing to bet that you would be able to execute on that vision. And that's you know, I'm sure a lot of stars align for for that to happen, but it's a very tricky moment in the evolution of a company, and that you were able to convince your investors to that you would be able to pull that off, and they gave you a 3.5x valuation on revenue is is remarkable, I would say. I I believe there was a combination. I agree with you 100%. Um, there was a combination of things that I think. Uh, Fed into that, factored into that uh, decision on their part. First, chip brands, and at that time, you know, Marriott was already a customer. Um, Prudential uh, had become a customer, and so that focus on big enterprise names gave us a lot of credibility and validity to, you know, to support that valuation. But the second thing was this, and I have often found this with uh, uh, with angel investors. These guys got the vision, and I think they got the vision even faster than most of our customers did. 
changing. Our, our advertising and marketing world is changing. MarTech is software is eating the world. I think it was uh, Mark Andreessen who said that. But uh, and, and it's eating the MarTech category. These guys saw that we were a part of that larger trend. I think even more deeply saw that than than I myself um, saw it. I was kind of on the ground, you know, moving from tree to tree, and they were looking at the larger forest. And so there was a faith in our ability to execute. There was a faith that the trend was our friend. And I think they saw that um, more clearly even than I did, you know, back in the 2005, 2006 time frame. So we were were very lucky. You know, from a methodology point of view, in our, um, the 1 million by 1 million methodology, we have a particular category called bootstrapping with services, which is roughly what you did. You bootstrapped using services, got these marquee customers on board, got to work with them, identified the problem, and then you turned that into a solution and, and your investors basically bet on, the, on your execution capabilities on that solution. So, I mean, at some level, if you pitch it like that, and if you, uh, and this is, I'm saying all these things for the benefit of our audience so that you can extrapolate from what Kevin has done successfully to what you might be able to do. I know we have a ton, ton, ton of bootstrapping with services uh, entrepreneurs in the community. So this is a very tried and true proven track of finding good customers, working with them in a services mode, and then understanding what pain they want solved that they're willing to pay for, and then creating a product based on that understanding. So please make a a strong underline on what Kevin is saying and showing in his entrepreneur journey, his lessons from the trenches. So, Kevin, where are you now? What's happening with the business, and, and what are the highlights? What, what else is, what do you want to share with the audience? Sure. So, so a couple of things, and I, w- I would just pick up on a, a, those points that you made. This notion of services and software and, and bootstrapping services, I, I, I really strongly believe in, but I think you have to go into it with your eyes wide open, and your investors should have their eyes wide open, too. And, and here's why I say that. Um, it is a... It is always a challenge to balance configured software with customized software. Your clients will often have the upper hand on you in the early years and will have you customizing software that, uh, uh, that you would rather make repeatable, reproducible, and configurable. Where we've gone now, we've reached product market fit. That was years ago, and it was after we did about 100 implementations with major brands. We really figured out the feature set that we needed. That was a lot more than our investors originally thought would take. Once we got to product market fit, we began uh, moving clients from their customized solutions to a standardized solution, and that was a mm-hmm. cultural journey of its own. And, and, and yeah. sometimes it's a struggle, right? Because customers... Uh, don't always want to hear no, and, and they some customers won't take no for an answer. Um, and uh, and and then finally, uh, as we as we've made that transition, now we're in that role that I think allows us to scale, where we can we can concentrate on process um, at every level of the customer journey, from their first contact with us uh, to their evaluation of us and our competitors, to their uh, selection, their implementation, and their their journey towards success. 
all of those steps now can be made reproducible, repeatable, and predictable. And that's what we're working on. And that's where I think we'll, we'll begin to see the services decline as a percentage of the whole, you know, going from, uh, we're, we're probably 70% software and 30% or 25%, 75-25. We'll see that decline. But I don't believe that it will ever go away. I believe that that role of the trusted advisor in the very choppy waters of local marketing automation. I believe the role of the guy will always be there. We can extract value for that. In fact, my sense is that where uh, investors used to really look at services revenue with a real jaundiced eye, I think now they realize that a little bit of services revenue is a great way to keep your clients sticky. And that's the model we're now trying to prove as we, you know, scale up um, into the the next phase of growth, which will be ARR well, above 10 million. I want to make a point uh, as a, a joinder to what you just said. See, Martech is a domain where the customer organizations, the marketing organizations of your customers or any other Martech company's customers, these are not crawling with tech people. So when you're dealing with complex technology that has to be understood and applied, whether it's analytics, whether it's any, any cloud technology, Martech technology, it's the, the customers don't often have the expertise to really drive your Ferrari like a Ferrari. So they're going to drive your Ferrari like a Toyota or a Prius, and, and that's, that's not the way to drive a Ferrari. So unless you provide services, um, they will not be able to get full value out of your product. That's Point number one. Point number two is there is a trend out there right now. You know, uh, the whole cloud domain has kind of come from this do-it-yourself DIY uh, route. But there is a clear trend where often customers are asking for DISM, do it for me. So you have to recognize that trend because they don't have the expertise to do it themselves. And the more we go in the domain of AI and whatnot, this is going to be more acute. The customers just will not have the expertise to deal with some of this stuff. So, so I think what you're pointing to, Kevin, is a very legitimate point that services is will be and will be more a part of the revenue mix as we move forward into these heavy-duty AI zone of uh, technology, technology solutions. You are um, uh, either echoing or anticipating what uh, I've heard from the technology analysts in this category. There's a, a great um, analyst at Forrester by the name of Jay McBain who, who says, do it for me, just as you're saying, Shramana, and also adds in there a do it with me. Right. So there's a a shoulder to shoulder uh, kind of experience, too. And I believe that successful SaaS companies in the future are really going to organize themselves so a client can decide what gear they want to be in. And they will shift from, you know, from um, managed service to self-service and just stay there. And others will cycle back and forth. We have some clients, for instance, in the automotive business who every model year, face such an intense amount of work that they, they need to move from do it myself to do it for me because they just don't have the, you know, the horsepower uh, on staff to do that. I think agencies are very much uh, of the same ilk. Well, sometimes they'll shift up and sometimes they'll shift down. 
our ability to adapt now, that's another part of, I think, where the company is going. And again, it's learning how to say to a customer, meet them where they are. I think meet the customer where they are and always be willing to adapt to them. That hasn't changed. Even as a software company, being obsessed about that customer experience, um, I think it's more important than ever. And there, there are expectations of our ability to do that are probably growing more rapidly than our ability. We're always yeah. running to catch up you know, with the customers. I've talked to a number of CEOs uh, who are – who have built their entire businesses on the do-it-for-me model for these high-end intellectual horsepower heavy uh, areas like, uh, you know, analytics is a big one. Uh, latent view analytics, absolute data, these are basically outsourced shops for, you know, marketing to do all their analytics with them and, and they know how to drive a Ferrari like a Ferrari. So they have technologies of their own, they have technologies from other providers, but they have heavy-duty data scientists that often marketing organizations cannot hire to be able to do what they need to do. It is, indeed, it is a trend. So, um, Kevin, to wrap up the interview, and we'll start the entrepreneur pitches shortly, where are you now and, and what are the key issues ahead? So, I would say the key issues for the company, you know, the, the reproducibility, the repeatability, and the predictability. Um, are the, the key challenges. We've, we've uh, simply got to start reliably making our numbers and setting expectations about growth that make our investors, uh, that satisfy the expectations that we ourselves set. And, and that's a sign of maturity. I, I will say, you know, one of the things that I struggled with in the early years, and, and I think it might be changing, it might be that this is just a, a function of the time in which Pike and I was, was birthed and grew, Reliable growth rates in the double digits and sustainable growth rates in the double digits is what I've been trying to um, champion. There are many examples of companies that hit hyper growth. And while I think that's fascinating, and someday I'd love to do that myself, of course, um, I believe that this steady upward progression in SaaS is also becoming more a part of the trend. There's a great fellow by the name of Jason Lemkin um, who's created several Great company. Yeah, he's just a, uh, I follow him and, and really appreciate so much of what he says. And I think it's because he humanizes the SaaS promise and encourages you not to look at a 25% growth rate or a 20% growth rate as a failure. I think it's really important, especially for entrepreneurs. And, and it sounds to me like, um, you know, the, so many of the folks that you um, serve are in that tough part of the journey. It's important to see success as success. Um, and, uh, and as we hit that plateau, um, I'm trying to make sure that we, we do that because the culture um, here um, is, I think, the number one job we have ahead. We have to build, grow experts in this category of ours that we help to create, um, and they have to see that this is a business that can be a career and that a 20% growth rate and a happy customer base is a tremendous success in and of itself. So I think that's our challenge. So in our um, program, the philosophy is there are many more $1 million, $2 million, $5 million, $10 million, $20 million ideas that grow at a linear scale uh, as opposed to the ones that are hyper-growth companies that go from zero to $100 million in five to seven years with a billion-dollar 
market opportunity, multi-billion dollar market opportunity, and, and we fully echo your sentiments. And uh, um, I've actually had plenty of conversations with Jason on this topic. Yes, and there are no, numerous, numerous fast market opportunities that are going to be slower growth opportunities, but steady, you know, problem-solving opportunities where you can build interesting businesses. So I fully, fully uh, echo your thoughts. Thank you, Kevin. That